So it's 7.15 in the morning on Thursday, January 9th, and it's the day before Speed of Life is released into the world, and I am huddled into a um, non-formaldehyde-lined phone booth at the WeWork that I work out of, and I am just looking back on the past few days, the past few weeks, the past few months, in and all the things we've done to prepare ourselves for getting this film out into the world and it's absolutely insane anyway so this is an episode where Alric interviews uh, my production designer for speed of life which is my second feature that's releasing on the 10th of january which may have already passed by the time you're listening to this so it's available you can go watch it if you want to uh, or just contact me and I'll tell you all about it instead. And I just remember being so happy that Ulrich liked the movie. And I remember loving hearing about Marcy's experience and just being really proud to have gotten to this point. So anyway, uh, fast forward to now because we recorded that episode months ago. I've been reading bad reviews of the film <laughs> for the past few days. And, um, you know, we're at 32 pre-sales. I mean, it's not impressive at all. Uh, obviously, there's other positive elements that have happened. We got a trailer announcement in Entertainment Weekly. And we're screening at USC. And we're giving out uh David Bowie Speed of Life related uh, enamel pins and Speed of Life cookies and we're really trying to make this into a fun exciting event which it is it's just I'm a jumble of emotions so anyway I hope you enjoy this episode uh, I know I had a very good time just listening to Ulrich and Marcy talk and it was a joy for me and if you want to see the film it's available on iTunes, Apple TV, Google Play. It's on a blockchain platform called Breaker. Uh, it'll be on DVD and Blu-ray. I'm willing to do a one-night theatrical event if anyone wants to just like have me in their living room. That would be fun. So I, um, we're doing this. We're doing this. The movie's out into the world. And I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to Making Movies is Hard, a podcast about the everyday struggles of being an independent filmmaker. I'm Liz Manischow. And I'm R. Purcell. So this week we have something very special. Um, we're doing uh, something that we've never done before, really. I mean, kind of, but not really. But this is like a special run of uh, podcasts to highlight the production of Liz Manischow's newest feature, Speed of Life. Um, we've kind of been doing this with the alternate since I started working on the alternate and we're probably going to be doing more of that as I make that movie. But, um, this is something Liz reached out to me to do and I was like totally into it because I think this is like the perfect spirit of this, this captures the spirit of the podcast and why I started the podcast in the first place is to really chronicle the making of films. Um, so yeah, Liz, thank you for, you know, approaching me with this idea. 
Thank you so much for saying yes. And I think a key part of why I want to do this is um, education. You know, so much about your fantastic podcast, Alric, is um, uh-huh. helping like dispel the rumors, the myths, everything that comes along with filmmaking that are just assumptions. And I also just an excuse for me to talk to my crew members that I love so much. Um, so we'll be interviewing nice. a few people from the crew um, and asking them what their experience was like. Yeah, and, and we won't release these every single week just to kind of keep a natural flow of regular podcast goodness to you guys because, um, you know, I know we're kind of all over the place with our interviews and I think to some extent people seem to enjoy that. So, you know, it'll be like Speed of Life and then a couple other things and then more Speed of Life, a couple other things, um, something like that. You know, it's just sort of going to depend on scheduling and stuff. But, um, but yeah, you'll get a few of uh, these. And then, hey, if you guys say... Oh no, we want all speed of life all the time, all in a row. <laughs> um, I'm sure we can we can make that happen. So just but you know, it's up to you guys. Like you have to tell me. Like if you want it that way, um you have to, you know, either email me or uh, you know, post on Twitter or, or Instagram or wherever, Facebook and just let us know. Cause then we can we can restructure it. But this is sort of the plan for now. And this is the first one, so um, yeah, I'm really excited to do this. And Liz, do you want to introduce our wonderful guest today? I do. And I also realize that I, I'm not even explaining what speed of life is. <laughs> <laughs> I assume everyone knows, but yeah, why don't you give it, a, give a, a big background of what speed of life is. It's your newest film. Yeah. So we made this movie in April, 2018 called speed of life. Uh, it's a fiction film. It's about 76 minutes long and it's currently on its festival run about by the time this, this podcast comes out, it'll probably be about to be released on like iTunes and stuff like that. Um, And the idea for the film is that, um, here's the pitch, here's the elevator pitch. Uh, David Bowie's death creates a rift in time and space in a couple's apartment. So it's a time travel romantic dramedy. How many more genres can I throw in there? And today we have (laughs) our amazing production designer, Marcy Mout, who we often accidentally call Marcella or Marcella, but it is Marcy. And hi, Marcy. <laughs> Hello. Thanks for having me, guys. Thank yeah, you. thanks for coming. <laughs> so Gosh. wait, I, before we get into your quick one minute bio, Marcy, I'm just curious. So you're credited as Marcella, but it's just you prefer to go by Marcy all the time? Uh, that's just a very complicated part of my life, I think, with the Marcella Marcy thing. Um, my name is Marcella, <laughs> but I've always been called Marcy. And at one point in time, I thought I might want to go by Marcella professionally, and then I changed my mind. So I made Liz change oh. it. <laughs> oh, well, we also like regressed the whole conversation by just assuming that's how she wanted to be credited. So one day when we revamp the credits of Speed of Life, we're going to change it to her rightful, accurate name. Uh, okay, but right perfect. now it's just this glaring error, and I'm so sorry. <laughs> it is totally fine. I, it's just a I, problem because it's it's a legal thing. Like any legal paperwork I put down has to say Marcella. So like when I do crew right. lists and stuff like that, it's got to say Marcella because it has to match all the paperwork. But then I go by Marcy and I'll work on shows for seven months and someone will be like, who the hell is Marcella? And I'm like, me, you've known me for seven months. It's Marcy. Like, same last name. All good. That's so funny. Yeah. Yeah. I saw uh, your your name in the credit and I was like, wait a second. I was like, oh, okay. That makes sense. That's definitely short for that. (laughs) Yeah. It's it's a thing. 
So, um, Marcy, um, before we get into the talk of Speed of Life, um, just give us a, a quick one-minute bio of your background and what you do and all that good stuff. Uh, okay. Uh, my name is Marcy. I'm from Texas originally. Um, I went to college in Chicago for production design and film. Um, I originally thought I wanted to be a director, and then I got to college and I was like, whoa, this is too much. I can't do this. So I really found my niche in production design. Um, it's kind of a perfect meld for me. My father's an architect, my mom's a fine artist, um, and I get to work on movies too. So it was kind of a perfect thing for me. Um, so I, in college, I made a super low budget indie feature. It was a lot of work, but I learned more on that movie than I did in all of college probably. And after that, um, I moved to LA and I started working on union shows as an art department PA, and I did that for about three years, and then I just recently um, got hired as an assistant art director, and now I have made it into the union, which is fabulous. Um, oh, wow. But I, Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a big thing to kind of stay connected in this world. There's kind of two, you know, there's the indie world, and then there's the, um, the union world, but I don't like to pick one. I kind of like to make a bunch of money on my union stuff and then take time off and try to work on an indie thing. It really like revamps my passion and it keeps me interested in the projects I work on. Um, and that's exactly what speed of life for me was. It was really just, it just really got me, uh, just got me more interested in everything that I was working towards. It was just kind of a huge reward to be able to do that. That's nice. really way too nice to say about your experience. <laughs> um, and I love that you said that like directing looked like too much work because I think clearly production design is like way more work than directing. I just think directing has a longer period of, of like it's a longer time commitment in terms of like duration of the project. But what what about directing did you think was too much or not right? Um, with directing, it was so, all the decisions were so upfront and I like to keep things, I like to go into something with a very loose, like I'm very organized and I like to plan a lot, but I also do it in a special way where it's, um, nothing is concrete and so that everything can kind of flow with the rest of the production. So with directing, I felt like everyone needed too many answers right then and there and I wasn't ever ready to commit to something fully. Um, and I think that was kind of my, my off-putting thing in college and then also the, the competitiveness just in a college, you know, realm where every single person wants to be a director because they don't know any other positions. Um, so I think it's, it's, it's 100% true. Like no one knows what anyone else does. It's like, you're a kid and you're like, I want to work on movies. So I'm going to direct. And that was me. That was like, you know, exactly what I wanted to do. Um, but then as I got further into experiences on set and like different productions or different short films and stuff, I really found that that's not where I, my strong suits were. My strong suits were really in the design and you can really influence a film a lot by the way you design it. So it was a, it was a really important moment for me to, to realize I didn't want to direct. Well, I'm yeah. grateful for it. Yeah. Kudos <laughs> to you for directing. <laughs> no, I'm grateful that you didn't want to. I'd be like, damn it. Competition with Marcy. Um, well, oh. <laughs> but that's I genuinely how I feel. Marcy always had answers to questions and I never, I, you know, speak about not having answers. I never, anyway, uh, Marcy. <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's a subject for another podcast. We have to talk about this. Um, but, uh, so, wait, go ahead, Liz. You seemed like you were queued oh, up. <laughs> I mean, I was just going to ask how Marcy and I met. And then I was like, why am I asking Marcy this question <laughs> that I know the answer to? Um, That's but so I'll funny. pretend like I don't. Marcy, how did we meet? 
Well, Liz and I met uh, through a mutual friend. I had worked on a um, union show with a, um, I think she was a set deck coordinator at the time. She and I became friends. And then it turns out she's friends with Liz. And so when this production came up, she just kind of emailed me and she was like, hey, I don't know if you'd be interested in this, but my friend's making this awesome feature. You know, you should send her your information and maybe we can get you hooked up on this film. And I was all about it. It meant that I had to quit the job I was working on early, which is hard to leave a show that you're working on early. Um, but I was like, okay, let me just see what happens. And so I just, you know, Liz and I reached out to each other and then uh, wow. we had to sit down. So what job were you on? Were you uh, working as a production designer on some union thing or were you as working as an assistant? Like what kind of job did you leave to go do this movie? I was an art department PA, which is the only position you can have on ah. a union show as a non-union worker. So right. I was an art department PA on Snowfall Season 2. Okay, um, nice. Yeah. Well, that seems like that makes sense. I mean, you know, going from, you know, being a PA on a big show to being able to production design your own film. Yeah, that, that definitely makes a lot of sense. Oh, um, absolutely. And I thought that when I left that job, I burned that bridge I, and I was okay with uh, that. It was worth it. But then it turns out um, the guy that I quit, like I quit his show, he hired me back as the assistant art director this last season. So he actually promoted me. He was super impressed. He was like, yes, little bird, go fly away. Go production design. Wow. So <laughs> it was kind of, it was actually like he was mad at me for two weeks and he wouldn't talk to me. And then I was like, dude, how can you be mad at me? I'm going to like design something. Like you should be proud. And it was like this look on his face and he was like, oh my God. You're right. I'm so proud. I'm so proud of you. Go do this, you know. And then he and then he was super happy for me. And he was he totally released me of all of my guilt of leaving the wow. show. What a way to advocate for yourself. That's amazing, Marcy. You know? <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Yeah. Kudos to him, too, for like being a, a positive mentor, you know, and not, um, you know, because that could have gone a lot of different ways. They could have just, you know, I've, I've heard stories of people like turning their back on people after making decisions like that, or it's even happened to me before. So, yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. It, people can get really upset when you leave a show. You know, I left, I think, a seat or um, one episode early. So it's not like I bailed in the middle of it. Um but it was still a change that they had to make within the department that did affect the department. And a lot of times, yeah, people can be a little sour about that. So this is just a kind of going off the, the little rail set that Liz has put us on. But I'm just really curious. This is sort of going back in time. Two quick questions. One, what school did you go to where they had a production design major? Because I've never really heard of that before, that you could like major as in production design. So I went to Columbia College in Chicago. Um, and they actually didn't have a production design major. Um, it was my, so my first year I did directing, my second year I did editing. And by my junior year, they had started to develop the production design department into more than just one class. Uh, essentially it was one class. And then there was the curriculum thing, like curriculum class where it, that would be your senior year each uh, like directing class, producing class, writing class, production design class, everyone in that department would hook up and they would all work on a film together or multiple films, like, you know, one from each department. Um, and so that was kind of the goal. But as I started getting more into production design, they started creating newer classes. And so I was actually in the, the first one to go through these series of classes and give feedback on what they needed to be, even though I had no idea what they needed to be. I was just like, this oh, wow. is good. This is not good. Wow. So it's not an official um, major, 
but it's a it's like I think it says specialty in production design as opposed to like that's my major. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, it's really cool that schools are doing that because I feel like that's sort of a big issue is like there aren't a lot of specialization in film programs, you know, especially for things like production design or, you know, other department heads that are so important, you know. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And then the other quick question I had was, you know, now that you're in the union, is it something that your union um, is okay with? Like you going and doing um, like, you know, bigger shows, of course, within the union, but then breaking off and doing um, indie stuff that may or may not be in like a union film? That is a very good question. And I'm not entirely sure how that works. <laughs> <Cool>. um, <laughs> you know, I know if it's in, in I, yeah, that's just kind of a legality part that I'm not really sure of. But as far as I understand it, you know, you're allowed to work on anything you want. You have to, within the union, you have to work in the union on a union show for a certain amount of days to like maintain good standing. So right. I wouldn't be able to just say I'm in the union, but then do only indie projects. I would really right. have to split it up equally so that I'm in good standing with the union. Um, you know, I'm making them money. I'm contributing to everything they do, but then I should be able to do a little bit on my own. I would think there wouldn't be a problem with that. Right. The, the the reason why I I know a little bit about this just from the DGA perspective. I have lots of assistant director friends who are in the union, and then uh, if they do a non-union project, they like don't put their name on it. You know, mm. like they go oh, under wow. a pseudonym because it's like it's you know it's just it's bad for them. You know, um, and I won't name names, but um, I just I've seen that multiple times. And I'm just, it's, it's really interesting because like, I've also heard from other union, people in other unions that it's not that sound. way in their unions. Yeah. Well, and actually sound uh, for bread and butter, our mixer. Now I, yeah, anyway, similar situation. <laughs> I'll just say that. Interesting. Nice. Um, okay. That, so tangent, uh, you know, we're off the tangent now. We can go back to the regular <laughs> thing. So you met Liz. Um, you heard about this, this film. Um did you was it the script that was like that spoke to you that made you want to leave your your job and and take this project on or was it as soon as you heard that you had an opportunity to production design a film you're like I'm I'm there no matter what like what was it that got you into the project and what what were your first thoughts when you read the script Uh it was definitely the project that I was interested in I mean I knew I kind of had an understanding because I had made my own indie film prior. I kind of knew how much I would have to put into it. And so in order to get that committed and throw that much of yourself into something, it really has to be a project you like. It can't just be anything. Um, and so I read the script and I, I could see a lot of it in my head already. Like I, I kind of had an, I had like immediate ideas that came to me. And so I was like, all right. And, and when that happens, it's a really good sign because he, your brain is, is you can kind of envision it the way you want to do it. So now you have to find a way to, like, is this feasible? And the, the hardest part for me was like, I, there were a lot of spots in the film that I was like, oh man, I don't know how I'm going to do that. Like, I know how I would do that on a union show. I would ask this person and this person and then this person and this person. But on my own, uh, I had to really think about a lot of spots to see how we could actually achieve that. Um, but it was absolutely the the script that made me want to leave my union job and come do um, this indie, which I knew would be very hard. And it was. Nice. Well, thank you. And we made you read like three different iterations of the script, I think, before you even signed on. I'm worried that that's how many we made you read. But it was more than one, I feel like. 
Uh, it was a couple, yeah. And I did some serious breakdowns, mostly for my own my own organizational, um, you know, tactics. But uh, yeah, each time you guys gave me a new script, I would sit down and redo the the breakdown to make sure I wasn't like missing anything. Or sometimes scenes would just move, but that could mess up the way that I was like planning on my end. So yeah, we did do a couple of uh, revisions of that. Um. So, I w- I'm just curious, like before we get into more of the details, like when you signed on to the project and you were in, what was your first step, um, you know, to tackle the product, product design? Like what was your first thing that you did? Um, well, there wasn't actually a whole lot I could do to prepare. Um, all I could do really was plan out each set. And I would often look at, I mean, I created a lookbook, which is a very common way for designers to kind of get their thoughts in order. But I essentially would find images and put them together in like a little, just a little PDF. It's nothing fancy. And, you know, I was so embarrassed to even show it to Liz when she asked, but I was happy that I had it. Um, (laughs) But it's so crazy that you'd be embarrassed because it looked fantastic. (laughs) It was literally just pictures on a page. And I was like, I'm sorry, I didn't plan on showing this to you. But and, and that was, it was really just like a personal way that I um, organized my, my designs. And so I would, you know, I think we had six months or so, Liz, that I signed on. And then before we while. could really do anything. Yeah. So I had to really keep reading the script um, and um, keep looking at my lookbook to stay really engaged in it because I didn't want to start forgetting anything that I had like already committed to. Um but there was, yeah, there really wasn't a whole lot I could do to, to prep during that six months. You know, it was, it was really just kind of sit and wait and then go. And so what were your conversations with Liz like? Like, did you guys do like a big in-depth like run through of the script together to like go over all the different elements of, of the film or like talk to me about like the things that you did do between, um, you know, like when you signed on and, and the actual pre-production? Um, I feel a little bad because I kind of think we, I didn't give Liz much, you know, I was on, working on a show and she was crewing up all the other positions and um, we stayed in contact, you know, I would send her my breakdowns, I would send her any information that I started finding or any other questions I had. Um, but for the most part, like, you know, she, she had a lot of stuff to do and I had a lot of stuff to do. And then once it got closer to time, we kind of started having more meetings and revamping and then I got to meet people that were um, signing on to the project as they came on. Um, do you remember it differently, Liz? Well, no, I just, um, I was thinking about how there's so many variables up in the air that you were waiting on us for. I mean, the script, I, you know, I don't want to give away too much about the script, but I think what's valuable to share is that it is two timelines, 2016 and 2040. And everything that you would need to do would also be based off of what locations we got right because you had absolutely and the shooting schedule so it's like i mean sure oh you know it it wasn't you know we didn't get to hang out all the time during those six months but you were busy and i didn't have any information to share (laughs) that would be helpful and i think it's kind of like this awkward situation of like being ready to go, but then us not being ready for you. So it's like this, it's always a dance, right? Oh, absolutely. And I think location really was the biggest factor for me. And, you know, I, I might've been a little spicy a couple times with you guys about locations that you were looking at, because I knew the challenges that were ahead of me. And I knew my capabilities with money and time and my crew members. Um, And so sometimes, you know, they would keep me in the loop a lot of with 
location scouting and invite me on the scouts, which I wasn't able to go to for the most part just because I was working. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I had a lot of concerns with the location and I would often, you know, raise my hand and be like, guys, this one's not going to work. Keep looking, you know, but I wasn't helpful. I wasn't there to scout, which is normally a production designer would be very involved in the prelim scouts. I just wasn't able to uh, participate. Um, but yeah, location was the, kind of the number one depending thing. And then, yeah, scheduling afterwards. So you were just there to say, uh, this location won't work. Find another one. <laughs> Absolutely. I was like, I am so sorry. I have no other helpful ideas, but That's this funny. one does not work for me. Yeah. Um, and then, and then just briefly talk about, cause you, you mentioned that you did a, you do, did some breakdowns of the script. Um, just talk to us about what you do in a breakdown as a production designer. Um, as a production designer, creating a breakdown is super valuable because essentially you go through the entire script and every time, um, you're in a new set, you, you write down everything you think should be in that set. And, and that's a hard thing because generally a production designer oversees the entire design. You would have a set decorator who set decorators are in charge of bringing in furniture and creating, you know, putting down rugs and stuff like that. You've got the construction department that would be in charge of creating any like builds that need to happen, you'd have props that would be involved and they would say, oh, you know, I'm going to put the this scarf here so that the actor can pick it up later, blah, blah, blah. But I knew going into this that I was going to be filling all of those shoes. Um, and so the breakdown that I created was literally everything I could think of that needed to go into a set. Um, and it would change. It would, I would go through it and I'd realize like, ooh, you know, actually I think I need some kind of little trinket for this bookshelf that I'm going to end up putting here. It was all in my, in my head, but the breakdown helped me keep everything organized and figure out like how many pillows am I going to have to buy for this set? You know, silly stuff like that. But it became a very valuable tool to me. And I'm not really sure how um, other designers do it, but you know, I, I'm in this kind of funny position where I'm super creative, but I'm also, I have to be very organized. So I have to have the, the Excel sheets and the Google Docs, but I also have to have, you know, a notepad where I can just scribble little things to myself on as well. Um, so it was kind of an interesting mix that I had to do. Nice. Well, I just want to go back to the days when we met Marcy and just kind of, and essentially just uh, fawn over her for a second, if that's okay. Because I think what was so astounding about her is that we were just these randos. It was me and my producer, Josh, sitting at a, co you know, a coffee shop with her. And she, I think she rolls up in a motorcycle. I didn't see a motorcycle, but I believe she rides <laughs> one. And she's just like this cool girl with tattoos. And she has like the script printed out and notes everywhere. And like she, you know, she did that lookbook, which she didn't want to show me. And just how absolutely impressive it was from my perspective like this goofy girl with like no money trying to make a science fiction feature to meet with someone who already put in hours to break down the script. So though I, I, it was, there was this nice push and pull between like, we're strangers, we don't know each other, but there was this wonderful leap of faith that Marcy took in committing time and energy to preparing for a project just in the interview phases. And I just want to say I was incredibly impressed by that. Well, thank you. That's super kind. But I have to say on my end, uh, I think I even said this to you in an email. I was like, you, you do know that I'm just an art department PA, right? Like, I'm not actually a designer. Like, I'm not designing anything right now. And so for me, I was like, whoa, I'm an art department PA. 
sure, I, you know, I did a feature in college, but that was many years ago. And I was like, this person is actually interested in sitting down with me. I was like, I got to get my shit together. I got to do all these things. And I was really invested in it. Like just the idea of sitting down with you guys to maybe work on this project was super exciting to me. Um, so I appreciate your kind words. That's very nice. Well, and then I'll, well, that's so crazy. Um, but also, <laughs> and then, uh, well, and I just something, cause I'm thinking of like, are there any potential production designers that are listening to this and, you know, to nail the job act like Marcy, you know, if someone's lucky enough to have a Marcy alike, um, on their project, they'd be very, um, their, their project would be very valuable. Um, but also it has to do with taste level. And I remember just seeing the, the printouts of pictures that Marcy, you know, had for her lookbook and the ideas she had and the, the aesthetics and the color palette and everything that she was sharing with us. And I was like, well, these look, these look awesome. Like it just was a gut instinct of like, this is someone with great taste who knows how to design in the very paltry definition of design that I know as a director. Like, does it look good? Does it feel right? Um, that That's also something to come at an interview with. You know, it's like, do your tastes meet up with that of the project and that of the director? Nice. Um, so I want to get to the design the future question because you know, this this film takes place, I guess, I don't know, I would say like two-thirds in the future and one-third in the other timeline. I don't know if that's accurate, but something like that. I have no idea if that's right. <laughs> <laughs> Seemed like that, that to me, right. just as a viewer. Um, so th there's a lot of future needs, basically. And so I'm just curious, like, what was your initial um, approach to, you know, creating this version of 2040? Like, were a lot of your choices sort of inspired by like description in the script or like how much like like action description was there of all the little futuristic things like like what did you have to go on and, and how did you come up with what you what, what you ended up with? The future is a really hard thing to design um, because the, it's been done so many times, you know, different points of future have been done a lot. And when you when you think of future as a viewer, probably you probably think of, you know, um, shiny walls and super bright lights. And, you know, you can go really cliche with it. And so um, I was like, I don't want to do any of that. I don't want it to look like that at all. You know, it's that to me is not what the future is. And if you think about, um, you know, 40 years ago, what we thought, you know, 2019 would be, I mean, people literally still thought there'd be flying cars. Sure, that's like totally kind of happening, but like that's not the point. It's the future progresses slower in design than people think. Um, and so I wanted to create a very realistic future, you know, a future that was believable, that I could actually achieve. Um, and I did go off a lot of the elements that Liz wrote. You know, she gave a lot of these little nuggets of things like kind of the, the smart house thing where you have someone like listening to you at all times. I was like, whoa, that's that's a crazy part of the future, you know, and this whole world that she created where, you know, when you're 60, um, you don't get to exist in the normal society anymore. That was also a really integral part of the design, especially for Anne's house or not Anne, my bad, June's house um, in 2040. You know, I wanted to create a future that felt like this woman was literally hiding. And so I brought in a lot of plants from the outside. I want her house to feel very alive as if she didn't need to go outside during the day because she had um, everything that she needed on the inside and she could really hide with uh, without feeling like she was hiding in a hole, you know? 
Um, so the future was was a big challenge, but a lot of it had to do with what can I achieve? Um, what what do we need to see? What can we kind of just put out there as if like the viewer can just assume this part of it? Um, and I think I, I was really, really happy with the way future was. I think it was futury, but it wasn't hokey. It wasn't cliche. And I feel like it was it was fairly realistic. It was gorgeous. And what, um, you know, Marcy mentioned earlier, having to do all the props as well. And in our future, there's, I don't know why we came up with this idea, but in our future, there's no food. Um, apparently, there's like whiskey, but there's no food. <laughs> so, so yeah. Marcy had to like design these like Soylent bottles, essentially, and like supplements and like um, we had a male contraceptive pill and Marcy had like five different options for pills to show me in like this beautiful bottle in which she put things in. So it's just like uh, being so detail oriented, but also like these absurd requests that we made of her. <laughs> Yeah, just going off the production design a little bit, like it felt very like Handmaiden's Tale-y in a way, just because it was like this future with this society that like looks like, you know, regular like American society, but it's obviously like some sort of regime or government control that's very different than ours because all these weird changes have been made, you know, that everyone is just conforming to like clearly by force, you know, in a very quiet way, you know, like with the whole food thing and they talk about missing food. It's like someone came in and decided that you're not allowed to cook food anymore and here's your supplement instead, um, which is all this like layered story information that um, you get without actually having it force fed to you, which I think is good. And it also kind of leaves it up to you as a viewer to decide like what this world is like, is this a positive world or is this a negative world? Like, you know, kind of like the movie sort of like tells you it's negative, but I think, um, I don't know. It's just really interesting that like, this is all, you know, being presented and it's a lot of it is largely being communicated through production design. So it's, it's really interesting. And I think that's like, um, must be a really, that must've been a fun challenge for you, Marcy, to be able to have to create this world through all these props and stuff that, you know, you know, just exist and they have to exist in a way that feels natural. Um, which brings oh, me yeah, to my absolutely. question. Um, <laughs> one of my big questions is, <laughs> how did you guys come up with the little node that, uh, you know, the computer voice speaks to you through? Like what, like what was, was that like written like that in the script or did you come up with that concept on your own? Like how did that come about? Uh, I have to thank visual effects a lot for that. Um, they did an awesome job. So I, I provided a small little, um, uh, it's a little light essentially that we kind of butled all over the house. Thank you, butyl. You're the best thing ever. Um, and so I provided just this little this little light that we were able to stick all over the house and then visual effects really took it to the next level where it looked super legit. It was way better than anything I could have like provided in real life because it doesn't exist in real life. And so that that really comes to production design working with visual effects to make something that everyone really likes and um, is you know acceptable to a viewer without looking too visual effectsy or too handmade. And just wow. to clarify, so these are like little monitors. We call them monitors, me and Marcy, even though no one oh, else yeah. follows that. Um, uh, that are like essentially in each room of the house and they're watching, they're surveying. Um, I think mainly listening instead of surveying to our characters um, and supposed to be like this authoritarian throwback. But um, there was a reason why we chose 
chose orange, Marcy, and I can't remember. Do you remember why it was orange? Orange orange was the color we chose for, well, that was me. I was like, Liz, I need to do some graphic design stuff here because, you know, we had had, I mean, this didn't make it into the final cut of the film, but we did have these, um, these printouts, these like flyers that were from this company that they would kind of post all over the place. And, you know, they, at one point they had come to, uh, give June a notice. And so I wanted, I wanted, um, some kind of look, I needed some kind of logo, some kind of graphic design for this company. And so we ended up going with orange was our primary color. I can't exactly remember why we went orange, but I think it was just based on, it's like an authority thing. Wait, it's a, I remember, we're in I just remembered. Face. It's because yes. we wanted it to be like Hal, but it wasn't going to be hard out, hard Hal. It was like Hal is red in 2001. So we're like, let's go orange. So it's like close let's go to softer red. softer Hal. <laughs> <laughs> yes. wow. That's right. That's true. Um, so just to go back to what you said earlier. So those, those uh, monitors, they're actually just a light that you attach to the wall. And the actors can pick, take off the wall whenever they want to. Is it just removable in the way that it is in the film, or how were you? How did you guys achieve those that aspect? Um, so yeah, those were. <laughs> this is so silly. Those were actually these little lights. They're waterproof lights um, that are meant for floral uh, arrangements. So one would put these lights in a vase and turn them on to give some kind of weird illumination thing. I've never seen them in action. But anyway, I found them and I was like, this works. It's the right shape. You know, we played a lot with these. I had come up with a lot of different options for this. Um, and most of them we figured out were just too heavy. They were too heavy to be applied to this location. And so when you're working in a location, um, you have a lot of restrictions. Most of them being, you can't put holes in walls. People don't want you to come into their house and put holes in your in the walls, which is why a lot of times, you know, you create, you build, so you can do whatever you want to these walls. We didn't have that option. Um, and so when I came up with these little lights, they were um, light enough to be stuck onto the wall. So we used uh, Sticky Joe, I think a lot of people call it, Butyl is what I call it. It's just this super sticky stuff that you can do a lot with, but it doesn't pull off paint or it's not supposed to. Um, it doesn't pull off paint. It doesn't damage anything. And so that's essentially what we did is we, we would butyl them around the house. And then, then when June needs to pull them down, she was able to actually pull them down. There's oh, no wow. residue left and you wouldn't see any of the, the sticky stuff left on the wall. Oh, that's awesome. And then, and then just to be clear, so then your visual effects team um, went over those lights and made them look the way they do. And so they had to track whenever they're being moved around or being held in hands or buried in the yard or whatever. Like that was all visual effects components. Yeah, that was James. James. So we had two different visual effects teams on the film, uh, each of whom really did us a solid and um, helped us out budget wise. Um, James did all of the monitors and basically he did all everything except for the wormhole. And um, he did an wow. astounding job. Nice. Um, wow. it's pretty cool. So um, let's, let's talk more about um, approaching this film, um, you know, as a, People don't know, but as I know, this was a very micro-budget production. Um, can you talk about how you approach a film like this? Like, do you have a certain amount of um, like like Did you know when you when you signed on like how much crew you would have access to, or 
was it understood that you'd be working like kind of alone? Like, I don't, I don't really know how many people were in your art department. Like just talk us through like how <laughs> you had to approach this film because, um, you know, cause of, cause of the budget size. Um, so when I signed on to the project, I did ask budget so that I could get an idea. Um, and based on that question or that answer rather, <clears throat> it was pretty clear that I, I wasn't going to be able to hire anybody to help me. And it was also clear to me after I reached out to a lot of people but that oh, no wow. one wanted no <laughs> no one wanted to um work for me for free. Um which is absolutely fine. It was it was right, right. <laughs> something that I that I was like, "All right, cool. I got this." Um and so it was me and then I had one other person who was actually my boyfriend at the time. I made him work on it. Um and Oh wow, he worked uh, every day with you? N- no, I wish. Oh, okay. I wanted oh. him to. He did, he did not. Um but he did help me a lot in terms of like moving furniture, which I'm a small girl. Uh, I can't really move furniture that much. I mean, I can move a lot of stuff. I'm way stronger than people think, but I can't move a couch by myself. Um, and so he became my kind of um, set dresser mostly. Um, and he also did some graphics for me, which really helped. So he did help me in a lot of ways. But for the most part, I was I was the person that was there um all day during shooting so I did like onset dressing and I did the props um and I also often would stay um uh, every day after we shot to redress sets so that I mean there was one day in particular we, you know we worked our 12 hours and then I stayed for another seven hours oh, wow. uh, redoing the set because it needed to change over from 2040 to 2016 wow. um, and that was a you know a scheduling thing that we couldn't really avoid because even if we were able to give me during the time during the day to change it, I still needed to be on set to supervise what was going on there. So I couldn't step away to change over a set. Um, And so that happened a couple of times, but it was, um, it was something I knew was going to happen and I was prepared for it. So. Wow. Yeah. I'm, I'm, so I'm meeting with production designers now or my production designer now for this, um, for this film, he's already signed on. Um, but, uh, this is a conversation we're having. It's like, I don't have any budget to like give you an actual art department. Like what is the bare minimum? And, you know, he keeps on asking for more people and it's just like, I can only give so much, you know, cause there's just no budget, um, for that. Um, but it's amazing to hear that you just did it, you know? Cause that was one of the things he's talking about. Like, he's like, if I don't have at least two people, there's no way I could, uh, flip a set, like, you know, prep a set, like while we're shooting, like that's just impossible. Right. And so it's amazing that you just did it. <laughs> well, and I want to commend Marcy because she, you know, worked her ass off and I always joke about how we're going to break Marcy but Marcy's kind of unbreakable but I want to acknowledge that this is really bad <laughs> like I just want to say it out loud like right. <laughs> I I do not uh like want to ever do this again to another person <laughs> um, and I feel like a little bit of guilt on this call um but very kindly, Marcy just worked her ass off, but I really never want to be in a situation where someone else has to feel like they need to do that. Um, so it's something that I learned from as well. Yeah. I mean, I would also say it. it is really, I would say, give your, please give your production designer what they want. But that's just me <laughs> <Right>. advocating <laughs> for my uh, fellows. Um, right. But it was, it really came down to, you know, do I want to take money out of my small budget of the art department to pay someone else to help me or do I just want to do it and honestly I just was like I want all the money I have 
to go into my design. I need it. I want to show, you know, like I want to be able to get the things that I need for my designs because it's, it's for the better of the film. Like screw sleep. Like I don't need sleep. Like I, I'm fine. You know, but you, I was you there do every day. need sleep. Everyone should sleep. <laughs> yeah, everyone should sleep. But I, I think what what this speaks to is like the the passion that we all have for our craft, right? And you know, Marcy, was this your first? Uh, this is your second film as a production designer, right? Yeah, second film. Yeah, mm-hmm. so I can I can understand that like you're probably looking at it the way that like Liz and I look at our our films. You know, it's just like this thing needs to be made and we'll do whatever we have to do to get it done. And you sort of, you know, took that sort of approach to, to your production design, which I think is a really, you know, amazing thing. But I do think Liz, you're right. We shouldn't um, be pushing people uh, that hard um, on projects because in the end it's, it's just a movie and there are ways to get away, like or get around, you know, th- these, these sleepless nights. Um, but we all do them, you know, it's just, it's just what happens, you know? Yeah. In my, in my um, mind, I'm like contemplating, like thinking of all the safeguards that we created. And then at the same time, I'm like, well, none of them were good enough. Like I'm now I'm just reevaluating the production. I'm like, well, our, our producer stayed late, you know, just to make sure that Marcy would be okay. But also we put Marcy in this position where she felt like she needed to stay late. You know what I mean? Like, I'm just thinking of all these things that I would do differently. And I know this is not that podcast, but I just want to, again, acknowledge maybe this is like the, like, person who's worried about lawsuits in my mind, but it's just like, (laughs) these are not good things. Like, they're brag worthy because I'm so proud of this film and every second Marcy spent on it. But at the same time, it's like the, the goal is to never do this to another person. Yeah, totally. And, and, and you'll take this experience, Liz, into your planning for the next film, you know, and when uh, someone's saying, well, could you just do it like this? Then you'll just be like, no, we, we can't do it unless we get what we need for our team, you know? Um, but yeah, anyway, so let's move on to another subject. Um, <laughs> Marcy's um, the best is the, is the theme of the is podcast. the bottom line. The bottom Can that line. just not be the entire podcast? <laughs> sure, Marcy's the best. <laughs> Um, so, um, I, I want to know, like, you know, knowing the, the, the restraints and knowing what you had to do on as the certain timeline with the budget, what were things that you did in order to make it work? Like, what are some tricks or tips that you thought of in order to like make this, this job achievable? Um, I would say one of the, I mean, the, one of the biggest things was that, uh, Liz and the producers actually listened to my concerns. And I really appreciate that because I had a lot of them. And, um, and like I said before, I, I really knew my, my capabilities. I knew that I could do a lot, but I knew that I needed them to understand, uh, the restrictions. So I, I remember at one point we were in a production meeting we were talking about location and someone was like, well, yeah, we're going to have this house, this house, and this house. And I would, I raised my hand. I was like, <clears throat> there's six beds in this production. Six. So that's six mattresses, six box springs, six uh, bed frames. Like, I don't even know how to provide that for you guys unless it's in one location. Um, and that was one really big thing for me. And I think that was kind of a moment where um, I know one producer in particular, like, their eyes were huge. So they were like, oh, my God, we didn't even think about beds. You know, it, that's the kind of stuff that the art department thinks about that no one else thinks about because – for shooting crew, they show up at set, everything's done, or it should be. Hopefully, you're not waiting on our department. 
Um, and then and then they just rock and roll and they do their jobs. But so much of the art department is prep and strike and moving stuff around um, that the rest of the crew really doesn't see that. So I think one of the biggest things was definitely location. Um, and once I got, you know, they actually they listened to me, my concerns, and we ended up choosing one location that we could really change around and make versatile that made a really big impact on on what I could do, my capabilities and how, and then I started to feel better about this. I was like, all right, I can handle this. If, if, if we're just in one place and I just have to move stuff from here to here to run, you know, it became a lot more achievable. So, um, so can you talk about that a little bit? Like what were, what was the one location they presenting and what was wrong with it? And what made this other one that you ended up with better? Like what were the differences between the two? Um, differences between the two would be, you know, one house that they presented was completely empty, which sounds great. You know, you think empty house, awesome. <laughs> yeah, I can do anything I want right. with it. The problem is if it is a completely empty house, I, our department has to provide every single thing in that house. And that's really difficult because there's always going to be something that you don't anticipate that uh, someone's going to want. For instance, Julia, our DP, loved foreground. That girl was all about foreground. She was always <laughs> asking me for foreground. And this might be, we might address this later on, but um, that for me was like a continuity issue. I was really concerned about continuity. I was like, I can't just put something here for your foreground because it doesn't exist there in the set. Um, and so I did have to kind of be super resourceful in this house that we were at. And sometimes I did have to borrow some of their stuff to put in foreground or, you know, I used their beds. That was a big thing, having mattresses already there that I could just move around and and you know put in different locations made a big impact on me because i didn't have the budget for any kind of transpo so i didn't have an art department truck i didn't have a cube truck i didn't have anything like that i had oh, my wow. tiny yaris i had my yaris and then my ex-boyfriend's element and that's what we used for everything wow. um, we did however get to piggyback on uh production they let us use their truck for some stuff which was really really helpful um but that was a big thing you know you think of transpo uh, as kind of a, a given, like on union shows, you always have transpo. <laughs> well, I can right. always have someone pick something up for me. Um, but on a show like this, I didn't have those resources. And so I had to get really creative. And so an empty house was the worst case scenario for me, you know, and I really let them know that when they brought that to the table. Oh, wow. Okay. So basically empty house versus furnished house. That was the, that was the, the ask basically. Absolutely. I would rather have something, a house that has a lot of stuff in it that I have to move. And believe me, I had to empty kids rooms. Um, I had to touch everyone's stuff. I had to put it all in boxes. I had to label it and then I had to put it back the way it was or yeah. as close to the way it was as possible. I remember Marcy. Um, so that right there is a challenge. You found like, I don't even remember how much it was like $10 worth and just like loose bills in that kid's room. Do you remember this? And then like, yeah, dude, it was like $40. <laughs> and then I remember like you took pictures of everything and put everything exactly where it was. Like I kind of adored that moment. Yeah. I mean, when you're in someone's house, you know, they're trusting you with everything and they don't always know exactly what you're going to do. You know, and that's also a very uncomfortable thing is like when art departments in a house and the homeowners are there watching your every move, you're like, okay, I found this weird thing under a bed. I don't know where to put that. Like, I'm just going to put it here and then I'll, I promise I'll put it back under the bed later. You know, it'll be there. And, and did you guys have access to the house for a certain amount of time on your own or were they living there while you were shooting? Um, they were mix. there. Yeah, absolutely. It was definitely a mix. Um. And it became, at first it was uncomfortable and then it, it totally was all good. You know, they were happy to have us. They were super nice. 
Um, and so there was, there was some days that I was literally moving their beds around, you know, through a tiny, tiny hallway. And I was like, I hope they don't see me dragging this mattress on the floor. <laughs> um, well, also so they had a cat and I remember, I mean, this may not be production design specific, but they, uh, they had a cat and one of our actors was deathly allergic to cats. So we had to like deep clean everything before anyone came in. In oh addition to Marcy doing all of the moving of the furniture. It's like there were like 15 wow. different variables all at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. That that was another challenge um, was the, the whole cat thing. But I mean, we... Uh, Pardis, one of the producers, was there with me. I mean, that she should get, you know, an art director credit or something because she helped me so much with production design. You know, she was always there for me. She stayed late with me. She cleaned around me, you know. Um, she always helped move stuff with me. She would see me struggling. She would come help me. Um, and that was super, super helpful to have, you know, the to have a producer there that sees what you're doing and is there no matter like how long you want to stay. Like she never complained. She brought me coffee because she knew I was going to be tired. Um, it was it was wow. a lot of help to have parties there. Yeah, she was fabulous. That's awesome. Um, so talk about how you brought David Bowie into the design of the film because, you know, David Bowie is a big part of this film in a way, but also a very small part, um, you know, just in the sense that like you don't actually ever see any David Bowie stuff necessarily, you know, um, except like kind of in the very beginning, but yeah, just, just talk to us about, um, you know, how you integrated David Bowie. Uh, that was really difficult because clearance wise, and I know clearance pretty well because I've done a lot of clearance stuff for union shows. So I kind of know how, what I can and can't do. Um, and so clearance wise, we didn't have permission to use anything of David Bowie's. I couldn't put any albums in there. I couldn't put up a poster of his, you know, I really was limited to that. Um, and so I came up with a couple of like graphics um, that we ended up using in the 2016 set that were David Bowie inspired, but couldn't be any kind of copyright infringement or couldn't be, you know, tied to his estate at all. Um, and and like so they had to be pretty references abstract. Too, right. I mean, it's like, it was a guy, I, my favorite thing is the poster where it's like a clown with a black star on the moon and it's like well the clown is like the ashes to ashes video but not quite and the black star is the black star and the moon is like Starman, and it's like 15 different really vague references in one piece <laughs> of art absolutely and we so we had to go very vague with it and we had to be pretty abstract with it and hope that you know people like us or the viewers would pick up on little elements like that um, that would help bring it through but that also kind of ties into the whole future that we created uh, where it's a lot is interpreted, you know, it's here's a little nugget and then you get to interpret the rest. And and I think that's a really great way to approach it when you're in when you have such a constraint like copyright infringement and stuff like that. Um, when you're really limited, you know, sure, on any huge budget thing, they would be able to give David Bowie's estate as much money as he wanted to use their album cover. But we didn't have that capability. So we had to get really creative with how we we brought him into the film. So, Liz, did you try to get permission from David Bowie's estate to get David Bowie in the movie, or did you just realize that that wasn't going to happen, so you just avoided it? 
Well, we, um, no, I didn't get permission for his likeness or his appearance because I knew that we didn't have the budget for that and I wasn't going to take any more money away from poor Marcy. Um, but <laughs> um, when we were doing the post music, you know, the licensing for the soundtrack of the film, we reached out for one cue that we actually recorded a scene to. Um, and it was Ashes to Ashes by David Bowie. And the estate rejected us without reason, um, without like literally wow. without reason, um, which was always our inclination. We always kind of felt like we were small potatoes and um, we would never get their permission. So let's just go forward in a respectful, legal way through these really vague illusions musically and set set wise. So then this begs the question, Liz, and um, this isn't really production design related so much, Marcy, but. It, it, knowing all that, why did you want David Boyd to be such a big part of the film? Like, you know, why was that important to you? What I think is really funny is um, it, it, he actually isn't really a huge part of the film. I mean, the original script had nothing to do with David <laughs> Bowie. It was supposed to be this horror film because I was trying to make money. I was like, horror always sells. Write a horror film. And I couldn't do it. And I got writer's block and... <laughs> And then David Bowie died and I was like in my room and I was like, it should be really fun. What if I just put his death into the movie and putting his death into the movie actually cured my writer's block. And so I just inserted him into the opening scene, his death. And then we wanted to make sure we followed up with it, you know, a few times, like rule of three, so that it felt purposeful and, and was a little bit of a tribute to him. But the film itself is actually about getting over a lost love. And we talk about David Bowie a lot because he's like the sexy marketing ploy to get people interested in our movie. Oh, I see. Interesting. I mean, because, you know, um, I feel like, yeah, the character, uh, you know, June, like her reaction to David Bowie's death is sort of like, part of the catalyst for the whole film in a way, you know, yeah. that leads to this thing that happens. Yeah. And so that's why I feel like it does have a lot to do, but I'm just saying like, you know, it didn't have to, but I feel like I can understand as a filmmaker and a writer and a creator, like why to you it, 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 it did because it was the thing that got you going and then it becomes intertwined with the story and then it becomes just this thing that like you just need to be in the film, you know? Um, and also so his totally death his death signals I mean, you know, wherever you are politically, we all feel that twenty sixteen I'm gonna say something very broad. We're, uh, oh we all feel like twenty sixteen <laughs> was a big year, right? right so right. Um, it was a big year. And so that's also what we're doing is like his death is kind of this time marker for the audience to be like the you know in our film david bowie's death creates that rift in time and space but like a lot of things that year could have created a rift in time and space and so that's what we're always kind of alluding to when we refer to david bowie and if you ask my partner sean he would think that prince's death was much more impactful but he's wrong it's david bowie well i think it just depends on who you are you know um yeah i mean to a lot of people like I mean, maybe not so much now, but at the time when Michael Jackson's death was like a huge, huge thing for so many people. And I don't know how those people feel about it now after, right. you know, a certain film came out. But um, anyways, uh, no, I'm just saying that, like, you know, for everybody, it's a, a different 
thing hits them hard, you know, um, because it's just how you relate to that artist. Um, and he but, just, by the way, he's like my favorite. Like maybe I didn't give it, say that oh, earlier. Really? Like, I love him. He's, he's your favorite? I didn't know that. Um, <laughs> I, I'm just guessing. I don't know for sure, but that opening sequence, that's you, right, Liz? Oh, yeah, that's me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Um, so... You know, we're kind of we're not about an hour here, but I have a lot more questions for you, Marcy. Um, one thing I want to talk about quickly was just how you work with all the other departments on set. Like what, um, you know, like how you have to communicate to the different departments and on such a small film where, you know, there's just you as the whole department. Like, how do you manage that communication? Um, yeah. So as a production designer, normally you're not as involved in the hour by hour shooting on set normally like production designer will go and open set and make sure that all you know the dp and that the director um are happy with everything and then you just kind of like peace out so you can go prep the next day um but for this it was really like i knew that i had to be there to supervise props and to do set dressing and be the on-set dresser um and so my communication like i felt very present on set which was such a refresher because in the union world we're so um, removed from it and a lot of stuff goes down that we don't have control over like we always joke in the art department like okay here it is bye and then you watch it and you're like wait a minute that thing moved and this moved and there's a mistake and so I was really happy to be so included on set like I felt like I had a lot more control over um, the way my designs were actually going to be shot and so I worked really closely with all the department heads um, you know especially Julia the the DP um, I had a lot of opinions about the way she framed things, you know, like, can we not show this thing because I'm not super happy with that? Can we kind of focus more over here because I'm really happy with the way this looks? Um, and she was really receptive to that and she really um, communicated well with me if she felt that something needed to be in the foreground or if this thing in the background really kind of needed to fly out for a little while because it was in the way. Um, and a lot of a lot of what onset dressing is, is <clears throat> telling other people their stuff is in your way. You know, like, hey, Grips, can you move this thing so that I can actually put my set piece here so that we can see it? Um, and there's a lot of times where, you know, the entire living room needs to come in a foot so that Grips and Electric can put stuff behind and light it properly. Um, and so the, the onset communication was really easy for me because I got to be so present and that people actually, you know, respected my position and didn't just be like, well, the production designer's not here so we can do whatever we wanted. It was like, oh, wait, no, Marcy is here. She might be outside smoking a cigarette. Maybe we need her to come over here. Um, but I got to be very present, and I felt really respected on set. Nice. And you, and usually it's like you're trusting the set dresser and the other art department who are on set, you know, watching the monitor to uphold your 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 vision and your design. But in this case, you got to be there and to do it yourself. Absolutely. And I felt that, um, you know, I feel that, usually with like an onset dresser, they're more tied to the production crew. So they're more worried about, you know, the AD and the director and the DP getting what they want. And they're, they don't always properly represent the art department. So I was really huh. happy that I got to be there to do that myself. Um, and I think it made a big impact in terms of like what I could control and the input that I got to have. Um, and I, and I almost wish that was like, you know, I wish the, in the union world that the onset dresser was a lot more uh, involved in the actual like art department as opposed to being more on the on the shooting crew side of things. I think it would have a big impact on everything. Nice. Um, to, to quick talk about like the biggest 
like challenge that you had um, in you know production designing this film and the most fun part of designing this film. Liz, should we talk about the bird? Oh, oh, okay. Can we talk about bird or should we not talk, <laughs> no, about, let's bird? talk about the bird? It was definitely a challenge. The the biggest yes, I would say the biggest challenge for me was that bird. Um, I read this script and I was that was one of the things that I like must have circled fifty million times in my script. Like, how are we gonna <laughs> do this thing? Um, and there was a small discussion of I remember I got an email once from Liz and the producers and there was like, what about if we build a bathroom? And I was like, no, 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 no. We're not building a bathroom. Like, we can't build a bathroom. Oh, That's impossible. Let's see what the so, bird is before we go into the details, right? So a bird, I mean, we know what a bird is. I'm so sorry. But the bird, in our film, the, a bird gets stuck between two floors, between a lower floor and an upper floor. Correct. So the bird gets stuck between the floor, like a floorboard type situation uh, between above someone's bathroom and below another person's bathroom so that it creates like this little hole. So the challenge with it was, you know, sure, in, in, the, in, in a situation where you have a lot more money and a build is possible, it really wouldn't have been that big of a deal. Um, I think I tried to get Liz to cut that out every single time. Like every time a script revision would come out, I'd be like, go to this page. Is the bird still there? And I'd be like, damn it, the bird is still there. I mean, the bird okay. was like a metaphor. We couldn't cut out the it bird. Was. I, get, I know, but I hated it so much. Um, it really was the biggest challenge, I think. So the solution was once we picked our location, again, like it became very location dependent. Once we picked this location, we had a lot of discussions, Liz, um, Julia, the DP, and myself, about how we could shoot this in a way that would be believable. So the solution I came up with was this puppet. So that's a little puppet bird. Um, and I found this really awesome guy at this company called Anamorphomex. Oh, I might have to get that to you later. Um, anyway, it was this super awesome guy who does a lot of these practical effects. So um, I found this bird online. I reached out to him. You know, I told him kind of my constraints in terms of budget and he was really like, yeah, man, I'll totally help you. I can work with your budget. Um, and so Liz and I went and looked at the bird. You know, he had a couple different versions. And once we got the okay for it, um, then the next problem was how do we fake this hole, right? Like we're in a location. We can't put a hole anywhere. We found a couple holes and we were like, maybe this hole will work. None of those holes worked. So what I ended up doing was a small build. I built a um, just a platform, super easy, that we faked as the bottom of the closet. And so the platform was about, I want to say it's two feet off the ground, so that someone could lay underneath the platform. And we got the like a fake um, vent duct, put that in the hole, so that it was like a believable hole, right? Like it's not just like a random hole. It has it's a hole with a purpose. Um, sorry. <laughs> And uh, then someone could lay underneath the floor with the bird on its like little puppet thing to control it while an actor lays on top. So it had to be like structural enough to support a person without crushing another person. Um, and it also had to be broken down into a couple of pieces so that we could fit it into this closet. Um, so that was really one of the biggest challenges wow. in the film, actually. And how much time did that take you guys to, to shoot that those bird sequences? Was it the most time consuming thing that you guys shot or was it once you actually had it all built and ready to go, it, it went pretty quickly. Yeah. I don't think it was more time consuming than anything else. And I wanted to just give a nod to Kimball Farley, 
who was our bird wrangler, who with no training whatsoever decided, um, well, no, we decided that he would puppet the bird and did a great job. Good job, Kimball. Yeah, and that was actually day one of shoot, uh, which made me nervous oh, because wow. it was day one first up. And um, yeah, so I didn't really know anybody at that point. Like I didn't have any kind of relationship with any crew member. <laughs> right, right. Um, and I was super nervous about it. And I was also excited to get it out of the way. I was like, great, let's just do this bird thing and like move out of here. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was kind of, it was on my side, it was a little rough because here I have this bird. It's super fragile. It's a real bird. Um, stuffed on a pole, like a metal pole with little metal wires. And so it's super fragile, right? And like this guy gave it to me at a really good deal, kind of like on a faith-based thing, like, hey, don't mess this bird up. So I was actually super protective of it. And we're sticking it in and out of this metal um, vent, you know, thing. And and I was really concerned because Kimball was fabulous, but it was such a fragile thing that Every time it would go in and out of this hole, its little wings would get all disoriented. I kept having to, like, comb its feathers down. It was, like, losing feathers. Yeah, and he had no um, monitor. It's... We didn't provide a monitor for him, so he had no idea what what he did, like, what it looked like, what he was doing. Oh, wow. So he had to just go yeah. off of your, like, basically your, you guys saying, it's good, it's good, it looks good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so that was definitely one of the, the largest challenges that I had. Um because it involved a small build and it involved, you know, I think the, the bird ended up costing about a third of my budget. Can oh I say that? Oh my goodness. Liz? You can wow. say whatever you want. <laughs> yeah, the bird costs about a third of my budget. So wow. up front already, you know, I'm down a third of my budget just for this bird rental. And that's after the guy gave me a really good deal. He actually gave me three birds for the price of one. You know, I had two puppets and then I had um, just a regular stuffed bird, which is the one we use when the when the oh, I can't say anything more. I guess. No, it's okay. But anyway, but they, we had there. Yes, there's a later scene where you see the full bird. Absolutely, and it and so that was he gave me three for the price of one, but it was still a third of my budget, and that was a really big hit from the beginning that I knew I had to do. Um, so I would definitely say that was one of the largest challenges I had. So then, tell us like one of the most fun moments on set making this film. Oh, Long the film thoughts. was so fun just to make and <laughs> pregnant bots. Um, the film was really fun in, in all elements. I mean, it was such a, um, you know, we had planned so much, but of course when you're shooting, it becomes, well, maybe let's, let's open it up. Let's do a wider scene. So then I, it became a, you know, let's make sure Marcy's happy with the entire frame thing. And so there, I'm really good at the, I mean, I thrive in chaos. I have to say that's like my specialty. Um, and to me, that's super fun. I was the most fun was being with the crew and being being able to provide a fluid department so that I I was able to do any changes that anyone wanted to do and I was able to accommodate things. Um, and it was you know it was fun interacting with the actors. You know, I as doing props, I had to provide them with things to drink and convince them that these pills that they're eating are just sugar. I swear, they're just sugar pills. Like you'll be fine. Um, and that was kind of a fun element as well, was, was working with the actors on that kind of stuff. Nice. Aww. <laughs> um, and then any special stories from set that you can tell? Like any like little anecdotes or, you know, just like something funny that happened that you had to overcome or just a funny situation, anything like that? You know, it was kind of funny with, um, with Anne Dowd. She was such a a sweet lady to me. She was super kind and she was so complimentary of like everything I did. Um, You know, I would say the majority of stuff I got came from thrift stores. 
um, just budget reasons, you know, but also LA has some fabulous thrift stores that really have some really good stuff. And I had redressed, you know, she was there, she got to see the 2040, which is mostly what she acted in. But then she also got to see the changeover the next day for the 2016, where I had to change the entire house back to 2016. And when she saw the 2016 thing, she was like, oh my God, I love this. I love that. And at the end of the film, she said, you know, um, this table runner that you have, you know, do you think I could have that? And I'm thinking, oh my God, I bought this at the thrift world for 30 cents. Like you can totally have this, you know, but it was so nice of her to, to compliment my designs and actually like want to keep something from the film. And so after the film, I, you know, I folded it up and I mailed it out to her and she was super appreciative of that. Oh, that's um, sweet. And at the, I think the last day of shooting, you started giving out elements, the production design to crew members. I remember like all of us were like, I want this, I want this. And I got a silver elephant, which I'm very excited by. And it's on my bookcase. Yeah. A lot of people were, you know, that's the other thing about, you know, having all of this stuff that you accumulate for a film. It's like, I don't have anywhere to store it. You know, it's not something I, I don't do the like buy return thing. Sorry for your budget, Liz, but I don't like I that's like a whole thing where it's I purchase these things and then now what do I do with them? And so I would say most crew members came up to me and they're like, can we can I have this? Can I have that? And I have a couple of things from the film as well that I just love because every time I see them, they remind me of this awesome experience and this awesome film we made. Um, but I do remember that Liz was a little nervous about me giving away all of our stuff because she was thinking like, oh, no, what if we have to do reshoots? And I was like, girl, we're not doing reshoots. It ain't happening. <laughs> well, we going. Did do, That's so funny. We did do pickups, <laughs> but we did two scenes we did. Um, outdoors that required very little design you know, in my limited knowledge. Um, But yeah, we didn't need to go back to that. We couldn't, we were never going to get Anne Dowd back. And so we didn't ever need the elements that were part of the 2040 world ever again. We just had to accept that that what we had with Anne was what we ever, what what we are always going to have with Anne. Yeah. Yeah. And and the homeowners even kept some stuff as well. You know, they, they really liked a couple of the elements. Uh, In particular, I think the terrarium table that I got for the 2040, which I just loved, but had nowhere to put. It was a fragile thing. Moving it, you know, you're probably going to break it. And the homeowners had a lizard. And they said, you know, can we keep this table and, like, turn it into, like, a lizard habitat? And I was like, totes. That's a thing I don't have to move from your house? Absolutely. You know, it's... And and so that was a really nice thing that people saw the stuff that I brought in and really appreciated it and either wanted to keep it for their own or, you know, wanted to take it, you know, and leave it in its location. Um, That was kind of a fun part of it. Nice. Um, so in the end, after, you know, you, you made this film, you guys shot for what, 15 days, 14 days, 12, 12 days, 12, Marcy? wow, 12, right? Yeah, 12. Pre- yeah, that was our, our, um, our normal shoot was 12. I think we had what that one pickup day. Yeah, so 13. Wow. And Kudos to you guys um, after everything's seen the film to get that in 12 is pretty amazing. Um, but what are you most proud of um, from from this film? Um, I think I'm proud of the entire thing. You know, it was like it's a really big accomplishment. And and after seeing it uh, in its many different forms, you know, Liz kept me really updated with different rough cuts and asked my opinions on a lot of things. And then getting to see it um, at the film festival, at the Method Film Festival, yeah, man, I was so proud. It's just the whole thing just makes me so happy. It's it was a lot to accomplish. Um, and I'm just so proud that I was able to do any of it, let alone like I, I look at it and I'm like, I did that whole thing. You know, like I, 
I designed the whole thing. I moved this piece and I moved this piece. Like I touched everything on that, uh, that made it into the foam. And that was just a really great feeling. Wow. Um, is there anything that you would go back and do differently? Like anything you would change if you had to do it again? You know, I, I don't think so. I think that I was, I'm really happy with the designs and I'm really happy with the way that it came out. Um, and I, I'm really proud of it as is. And I try not to criticize myself too much. Um, I think that if anything, I would have added a little bit more stuff, you know, like thinking of things, being one person trying to provide all the things is really difficult, um, especially because in the union world that I'm used to working in is you have so many people that are all contributing to the set. So it's the layers upon layers upon layers that really make it feel like an authentic set, make it feel like an authentic um, scene. Um, and so if anything, I would have, I thought, I think bring more stuff that I could have had on hand to add to certain scenes. Um, but for the most part, I try not to think about what I didn't do right. And I try to really just appreciate the things that I did accomplish. Well, just to fawn over Mercy one final time, um, she's just a tremendous talent and fantastic collaborator. And I know she's she'll have no problem finding work, but I just want to encourage everyone to pay her a million dollars on her next project. That's all. Thank you so much, Liz. That's very sweet. So I have a question and this is like sort of an advanced, more detailed version of Liz's question, which she wrote here. But, um, you know, like micro budget features are a huge challenge for like every department from, you know, the director of the filmmakers to, you know, gaffer everybody it's it's just a big challenge to get a movie done on this kind of scale um but what would you say to uh future um or or, or production designers who may be posed with taking on their own micro budget feature like do you feel like this is something that we should be doing or like do you have an advice to give them if they were taking this kind of project on I think it's absolutely something we should be doing. You know, it's, I think it's really important for future designers or designers in general to know their um, restraints, know their capabilities and, um, and really not be afraid to speak up when they, when they feel like something is not going to work for them. Um, and I, and I want to just pat Liz and her crew on their backs for really listening to me when I had concerns and really taking them to heart because especially with scheduling, um, I had a lot of opinions about that as well. And they really did work with me to the best of their abilities. You know, we only have 12 days. We only have this many days with this actor and this many days with this actor. Um, but when I asked for more time for this, they were able to accommodate me the best they could. Um, so I would, I would tell designers to, if you're going to work on a micro, make sure it's something you are really passionate about, because if you're passionate about it, it's not going to feel like too much work. You know what I mean? Like it's going to, it's, it represents you as a designer. So if you aren't um, excited to do it and your heart's not in it, it will show in your designs because when you're able to push yourself that far on something, it's because it means something to you and because you're all in it and you have to be all in it to work on a project like this. Like for me, it's not about money. It wasn't about anything else besides experience and, and, you know, meeting new collaborators and, um, and building my portfolio and creating something that I was just really proud of. Um, and that would be my advice, you know, make sure you're passionate about something if you're going to, if you're going to try to do it. And, and would you do this kind of project again now that you've gone through this experience? Oh, hell yeah. For sure. 
So you don't think that there's like a limit of these micro budget features that you have as a production designer in you. You feel like if it's the right story, the right circumstances, the right team that you would jump back into this again and again and again. Absolutely. Like I said before, it's the thing that keeps me passionate about uh, being a production designer. You know, like the union world has, you know, so many resources and all this stuff that you need, but it also it feels more like a job. You know, it feels more like a every day you have to show up, you have to do this, you have to get these things done. But working on a micro, it's like you want to get it done. You really want to work and put as much into it as you can because it represents you. Um, so I would do micros all day long, you know, like if it if it works nice. schedule wise and it works um, money wise financially, I would do them all the time. They they really I mean, indie films is what got me interested into film when I was a kid. I was watching some very weird stuff when I was younger. Um, you know, Gummo. I think I saw Gummo when I was like seven. Thanks, older brothers. But <laughs> it's it's a film like that. Like when you're a kid and you don't understand what's going on and it's so weird and it's so it feels so real life. You know, that's a micro. It's a I think um, it's that kind of film that I was always really interested in working on. I never really wanted to do union stuff. I never really wanted to do TV shows. It was always indies that I wanted to do. So getting the opportunity to do that um, is really important to me. Well, that's really encouraging because like, you know, I feel like for a lot of filmmakers, you know, micro budget is going to be the way that they make films, you know, because um, you you may, maybe you're going to get bigger budgets later on. Maybe you're going to get other opportunities to work on bigger stuff. But I think the sustainable model is just to do it for less money in order to actually get your films made and to hear that there are professionals out there who are willing to do it time and time again and who aren't only focused on growing budgets and going bigger, 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 bigger teams. Um, it's just nice to hear as an independent filmmaker. So kudos to you, Marcy. Um, Thank you. Liz, last questions for Marcy before we wrap this up? No, I'm just really enjoying listening. And thank you, Marcy, <laughs> for being so open and, and honest and fabulous. Well, thanks for asking me to do this. It's super fun. <laughs> so, so Liz, here's a question for you. Yeah. Um, you know, in working with Marcy and working with a production designer, like, what did you learn as a filmmaker in this experience as far as creating production design and like, is there anything that you do differently on your next film that you learn from working with Marcy? I think it's just that there are real repercussions, the decisions you make as a writer. I think when I'm in my room, I'm in my little cave and I'm writing, I'm often challenging myself to write things beyond, you know, dialogue scenes that are from a romantic dramedy, which is like my specialty. Um, and when I threw the idea of putting a wormhole into this and time travel and all this stuff... I don't think I really understood how much hard work it would take to execute that. And so like I really lucked out because of my fantastic crew. But just even hearing this Marcy talk is reminding me of all the things everyone did to make this project a viable project. So I just need to keep that context in my mind every time I write something because I'm going to keep on doing micro budget until someone hands me a million dollars. So I need to think what's going to be the kindest thing for my crew while also fun and meaningful um, and um, substantive. And sustainable too, you know. To totally. Yeah, which is great because this is your second feature. And so I think you're like living proof that this is sustainable to make 
multiple features um, at this micro budget level. So to me, it's like, you know, as a filmmaker who hasn't yet made my first feature, it's like, this is the future that I could have. Like I could make more than one of these and I could keep going. So you two could uh, be like me, Alric. I mean, I know exactly. <laughs> so to me, it's like you're a huge encouragement, Liz, to, um, to the filmmaking community. And, you know, hearing from Marcy, it just, it's even more encouraging, you know, to like know that this is the kind of teams that you can create. So, um, if you're so, yeah, really lucky, really, you pumped. can get a Marcy too. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, Marcy, now that we're wrapping this up, you know, where can people find your work? Uh, are you on Instagram, social media, website? Uh, yeah, so absolutely. I have, uh, plenty of social media accounts. Um, I have an Instagram it's M A R underscore S E E. Um, and that's really my personal one, but it, it kind of documents a lot of, uh, you know, my daily life and art department, which is super fun. Um, and then also if anyone's interested to collaborate on anything or needs a little bit of help with some ideas, uh, my email is M-A-R-C-E-L-L-A-M-A-U-T-E at gmail.com. Um, and I am always happy to help anybody because, you know, it's what this entire community is about is, you know, I have a question about this. How did you achieve this? If I need to build this, what does it need to look like? Um, and I'm always happy to answer any questions and collaborate on projects. Awesome. So you hear that, people? If you're trying to make a movie and you need a production designer, you can email Marcy directly and maybe she'll uh, she'll give you some advice. Or, I don't know, take a look at your script if you're lucky. Um, you know, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, yeah. So uh, thanks again, Marcy, for coming on the show. Um, if you want to check out our website, you can go to MickeyMoviesIsHard.com where you can find links to the things we talked about in this episode, including hopefully a trailer for Speed of Life by now. Hopefully it's out in the world for people to see. Um, and then, you know, we'll have Liz's website and the film's website out there, too. And then, you know, maybe if if Marcy, we can find some other examples of uh, your past work like either things you've production designed or that you've worked on it would be fun to show those too just to show the contrast between the stuff that you do um yeah absolutely awesome and then if you want to get in contact with us you can send an email to podcast at mickeymoviesishard.com uh you can let us know what you think of this segment and how you'd like to get these episodes because i think at this point we'll probably have multiple in the can so if you're like no no give me more speed of life now like I will literally change the schedule and re and put the the next Speed of Life episode out next week if that's what people tell me to do. So yeah, this is your chance to to get more uh, Speed of Life if that's what you guys want. Um, I mean, you're gonna get more of it no matter what, but you know, you get it at what time you get it is is you know up to you guys. You're gonna get like <laughs> three emails from my dad. If... <laughs> okay. <laughs> nice. Well, hey, if your dad's vocal enough, uh, you know, greasy wheel gets the grease, right? Or squeaky wheel gets the grease. <laughs> yeah. Not the greasy wheel. Squeaky wheel gets the grease. So, uh, yeah. So, yeah. Anyways, um, Liz's dad. It's up to you. Um, and <laughs> you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at MMIH Podcast. I'm Ulrich B on Twitter and Instagram. And Liz, where are you now? I nowadays? am back um, on Twitter with an open profile. <laughs> so <Yay>. at Liz <laughs> Manichelle, um, or speed of at Speed of Life MV for movie. Um, Speed of Life has a Facebook page. It's got a website, speedoflifefilm.com. We collect your email address there so we can be in contact. Or my name, Liz Manischel at gmail.com. That, those are all the ways to talk. 
Awesome. And then finally, if you guys like this show, uh, tell a friend. You can help us get the word out by leaving a review on iTunes or Stitcher, which is extremely helpful. We also have a Patreon page that you guys can check out and support if you want to see more of these episodes keep coming in the, in future years. Um, and yeah, um, no, no cool ending <laughs> that I've come up with. That's so funny. <laughs> the last episode or that we recorded, I talked about wanting a better ending and, um, I have not written a better one yet. So yeah. Thanks again for, for both of you for a wonderful show. And yeah. Thank you. Maybe that's the Thanks cool so ending. Thanks for having me. Oh, sorry, Marcy. <laughs> I think no, the fine. cool idea is just like extreme awkwardness talking over each other and like petering out. Yeah, that's that's the way we do Bye. it here. <laughs> Talk to you guys next week. Thanks. All right. Well, thank you for listening <laughs> to our episode about uh, the production design of my second feature, Speed of Life. And if you want to contact me about the movie and how to see it you could just email me at lizmanichelle at gmail.com you could go to our website speedoflifefilm.com and on there we have press we have stills we have the trailer we have ways to see the film um obviously uh not obviously oh god do this again liz this is do I get to edit this? No, I'm just going to keep going to make it easier for Ulrich because it's the day before we release this podcast. Um, I was going to say, obviously, you should follow us. Uh, Making Movies is Hard and all of our social channels, MMIH podcast on Twitter, Instagram, all of these things. And um, to drop us an email. And here's where I'm supposed to tell you where our email address is. Okay. Podcast at makingmoviesishard.com. You can send us an email there. And what else? Um, I'm just glad you listened. And if you want to check out the movie and see how Marcy's magic was put to good use, you know, watch Search for Speed of Life on all transactional platforms today. And thank you. Thank you for listening. I'm so awkward. Bye.